The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world, broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world, spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com, music for your mind, body, and soul. Dr. Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels. It is Tuesday, March 7th, 2017. My, how time flies. So tonight, we are going to talk about the art of the double cross. I talked to my daughter about this topic, and she said, Mom, that's not a double cross. That's a triple cross. That's a quintuple cross. You know what the audience know when... They get to the double cross part, and they're crossing over into the triple cross. I thought, oh, that's an interesting way to talk about it. So we're going to talk about at least as far as the double cross. Beyond the double cross, it does get a little complex. Don't worry. Not necessary to follow it that far. But at least we'll get you to understanding the double cross. Now, a lot of these uh, radio shows, of course, all of them come from somewhere. And so I sit down uh, uh, thinking, and as you know, I get this email. I'm on the email feed with Medscape. And this big headline came across. And I said, holy cow, it's the double cross. It's the fix is in. Things are worse than I thought. And so this is the innocuous, harmless, harmless topic. And it says, Symptoms reported by patients often do not match those in the electronic health records. Yes, amazing. So, first of all, what is a health record? It helps to understand what a health record is. So, a health record is created by information the patient provides and information the doctor provides. And together, this is a record. Okay, it's called the health record. But the question is, what information is the patient providing? Well, let's take a look. I figured I'd ask Dr. Google for a new patient registration form. This is for Memorial Care Medical Group, and it could be any old care, any old group, anywhere. Pretty typical. Now, I just have to tell you that in Panama, I live in Panama, 
A doctor will treat you without knowing any information about you except that you are physically there and you're telling him what you want. But let's see what the American system requires that the patient divulge in order to be to receive medical services. So the deal is the patient provides, provides information. In exchange, the doctor provides useful services to improve or benefit the person's health. So let's see what we got here. First name, sounds reasonable. Last name, all right, I'll go with that. Middle initial, okay, plausible. Date of birth, address, city, state, zip code. Is this information, just by the way, that you would give to a complete stranger? Probably not, and probably not the first time you met them, but it gets better. How about your home phone number? Okay, no problem if they really have a cell. Then they want your work number. And then your cell phone number. Well, now we're getting pretty pretty personal here. All this for a sore throat gets better. Now you have to give other names used. Wait a minute. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Why does my doctor need to know my aliases? But let's continue. Then your email address. Then your gender. That can be... Tough one to figure out. Doctor is going to do the physical exam. You think he could formulate his own opinion on this, but whatever. Social security number. Preferred language. Driver's license number. Marital status. And they got a lot of them. Married, single, divorced, separated, widowed, and life partner. When I was first starting out in medicine, it was called significant other. Preferred contact. Mail, home, day phone, cell phone, patient portal. Ethnicity, Cambodian, Filipino, Hispanic, Latino, or non-Hispanic. And race, as if it's different from ethnicity, but we're going to find out. Either you're American Indian, Asian, Black, African American, Native Hawaiian, other Pacific Islander, white, or other. Primary care provider, it's a doctor that you saw last or usually and referring product provider so you can know where to send the thank you letter. <clears throat> so we have a lot of information here. You would think that this might be enough information to provide therapy, but no. Responsible party, that means who's going to pay this bill. First name, last name, middle initial, date of birth, address, city, state, zip code, home phone, work phone, cell phone, social security number, Relationship to patient, preferred language, driver's license. I mean, you look at this man, you got more than the average private detective has when he starts on a case. Now we have emergency contact. Emergency contact. So now you have the patient's identifying information. You have one party. Now you have a second party. Again, first name, last name, middle initial, date of birth, address, city, state, zip code, home phone, work phone, and cell phone. Then we have a consent form. It says, I, we do hereby consent to and authorize the performance of all treatments deemed advisable by the physicians and staff of the Memorial Care Foundation. So now you have totally waived your right to consent. You said, man, I'm going to consent to whatever you guys decide to do to me. All right, 
So remember, it's a pretty this is blanket consent. I am directly responsible for all charges incurred for medical services for myself and my dependents, regardless of insurance coverage. In other words, you have just offered your home as collateral. No problem. I further agree to pay legal interest, collection expenses, attorney's fees incurred to collect any amount I may owe. I also hereby authorize them to release information requested by insurance companies and or its representatives. I fully understand this agreement consent and consent will continue until canceled by me in writing. This is a pretty hefty consent here. So you're going for a sore throat. The doctor says we got to do surgery. And hey, you've already consented. All right. You would think that that might be enough information to get started with your medical therapy. But no. You've got a preferred pharmacy, name, address, phone number, and fax. Secondary pharmacy, name, address, phone number, and fax. Advanced directives, it's like you have none, you want to resuscitate, no resuscitate, durable power of attorney, living will, and healthcare proxy. Just check the box. And you can say, I don't take any medications, or you can list all of them. Medications and food allergies, list those. Then we have all kinds of uh, questions, personal questions. Again, all this for a sore throat, it seems a lot to go through. And uh, then you have to give information about your mother, father, brother, sister, and other relatives and diseases they might have. Then you have to go through, check if you've received the following and date of Hi, Stephanie. We are back on the air. So we're going over the registration form, a typical registration form a patient is asked to complete before uh, submitting to medical intervention. And so this person uh, is submitting information that is such, of such a personal nature that this could literally be used to impersonate the person. For example, alcohol use, daily, weekly, less, year that you quit, do you drink beer, wine, liquor, other? Exercise activity, moderate, vigorous, sedentary, sleep patterns, changes, no changes, caffeine use, daily, weekly, less. Do you drink chocolate, soda, take tablets, coffee, tea, or other? This is amazing. And then for pediatric patient, do you live with mother, father, both, or other? Mother's occupation, father's occupation. Parents' relationship, child care. Is it nanny, daycare, grandparents, sibling, father, mother? Patients, a current smoker, yes, no, tobacco, exposure. I mean, just think about this. Let's just say, for sake of discussion, you're someone who likes to, you know, take advantage of children. Let's just say. I mean, you find a chart like this, and it says child care is a sibling, or better yet, daycare. All you got to do is go knock on the door and flim-flam the sibling or show up at daycare and pretend to be a helper or a friend of the parents. Man, this kid, this kid's goner. This is a lot of seriously sensitive information that the patient fills out. This is just what the patient fills out. Why does the patient fill this out? The deal is, in exchange for filling out this information, which no responsible adult would divulge, may I say, to anybody, 
that the patient is going to receive care that's a benefit to him from this doctor, number one, or number two, that his insurance company might pay for this visit. In most cases, both are totally false, and that is the cross. But there's always a double cross. So that's the cross. So the patient is believing that for filling out this information, he's going to get a reward, which is, one, the insurance might pay for the visit, which it usually doesn't. Why? Because of deductibles and co-pays. But two, the information and therapy the doctor gives will be a benefit. And the chances of that being the case are just about zero, and we're going to find out why in a bit. Okay. But what's the other deal going on here? That the doctor is going to provide information. What information does the doctor provide? The doctor provides the information of physically examining the patient, of sharing with the insurance company his recommendations of a drug or whatever. Um, and this is what the doctor provides to the insurance company. And what's the promise? That the insurance company will pay the doctor. Which, of course, the insurance company usually doesn't. So that's the cross. So we have two crosses here, two transactions which, in which the insurance company does not hold up its bargain at all, no way, no how. However, there's a double cross. What's the double cross? Well, first of all, let's talk about this information. How is this information really used? This information is used exactly the way Anyone would use this information. This information is used for skip tracing. If somebody um, wants to find an individual, all I need to do is find their medical record. Duh. And in their medical record, you have everything you need. You have the person's home work information. You have uh, their whoever pays their bills or helps them out financially. You'll have a contact of an emergency contact everything you would need to locate somebody. Then you even have what you would need to impersonate them or gain their confidence. You know if they drink, how much they drink, what they drink, you know what their favorite beverage is, whether it's tea, coffee, soda, or chocolate. I remember back when I was a kid, or not a kid, but I was uh, younger practicing medicine, either they used, uh, they drank coffee or they didn't. Either they drank alcohol or they didn't. Either they used tobacco or they didn't. All this incredible detail, it can only be used to impersonate the person, entrap the person, or appear to be familiar with the person in a way in which you do not, you're not familiar with them. So you can assume and impersonate a relationship that doesn't exist. You would think that a uh, competent adult would seriously question completing this information. And so this information is actually used, by the way, for marketing purposes. So the insurance company gets this information and uses it to figure out ways to make even more money on the people that have this insurance and, of course, to sell them other insurances. And really, uh, it's unlimited. Now, the other thing is, if you're a lady who's pregnant, do you ever wonder how you got all these baby notices about all these products and inundated with all this junk mail about babies? Well, it's because they buy the information from your obstetrician gynecologist. 
And so this is actually what really happens to this information. So that's what the insurance company really does with the information. Now, what about what about the double cross? It's always double cross. So what's the double cross? So the cross is that these people actually don't get the money from the insurance company that they plan to get. So what happens then is the doctor, in order to get more money from the insurance company, falsifies the records puts information in there that is just not true. And so then it makes this medical record totally unreliable for marketing purposes. So the insurance company has corrupted its own database, has created a database whose data is useless because it's not accurate because they crossed the doctor and then now they have the double cross, which is the doctor says, hey, I'm going to give you false information, hoping the false information might get you to pay me. You're not going to pay me for the truth. Maybe you'll pay me for a lie. So let's see what this says. And this is from Medscape Family Medicine, from the horse's mouth, so to speak. And this is Medscape, a reliable uh, data source uh, for doctors. And let you know what's really happening. And so... Um, as data in electronic health records may not accurately reflect patient-reported symptoms. According to a study published online January 26 in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Now, if that's not reliable, I don't know what is. Hey, they say it's true. I'm going to believe it, sharing it with you. So the authors of the study and a related commentary note that similar discrepancies have been shown in previous studies and that they have implications for both patient care and the accuracy of big data research that pools information from electronic health records. And so when you go into the emergency room, all this data about you, all this stuff you're filling out, all this information is monitored, is scarfed, is scraped, is pooled, is analyzed, and is used not in your better interest, believe me. So what has happened then is the doctors have just taken to creating a chart that is a total fiction designed to facilitate reimbursement. So, so Nikita uh, MS, I guess Masters of Social Work, from the Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences at the University of Michigan Medical School in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and colleagues compared patients' answers on an eye symptom questionnaire with symptom information recorded in electronic health records for 162 adult patients who were seen in comprehensive ophthalmology and cornea clinics at the university's eye center between 2015, October 1st, and January 31st, 2016. Patients were given the eye symptom questionnaire while they were waiting to see the doctor. And they also were asked about the severity of eight eye symptoms in the last seven days. The researchers checked those answers against the electronic health record data record recorded by any provider. For 33.8% of patients studied, information on blurry vision did not match between the questionnaire and the electronic health record. Likewise, documentation was discordant I mean, the patient said one thing and the medical record said another thing. 
for reporting glare, 48% discrepancy. Pain or discomfort, 26% discrepancy. And redness, 24% discrepancy. Overall, there was poor to fair agreement for symptom reporting. The authors found that it was most often the case that the symptoms were reported in the questionnaire, but not in the electronic health record. Blurry vision was the exception, being more often reported in the electronic health record than in the questionnaire. However, when the patient made a return visit, it was five times more likely, compared with new patient visits, that symptom reporting for blurry vision would not be recorded in the electronic health records. Wow. This is interesting. So in other words, if the person had blurry vision on the return visit, it's a five-fold probability that it would never be reported. Why? Well, doctor has to show improvement, right? The inconsistencies imply caution for the use of electronic health record data in research studies. Whoa, 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 back up, back up. <laughs> Did you hear that? Did you hear that? This implies that you should be careful in using the electronic health record data in research studies. Well, how about caution in using the information in the electronic health record as a basis for therapy, huh? How about caution there? I mean, if the accuracy of the data or the inaccuracy of the data is, is 48%, then how can you base medical decisions on that data if 48% of the time it's just not accurate? Reasons for the disconnect were unclear from the study but the authors found the following factors were not significantly related to inconsistencies. Age of the patient, sex of the patient, physician's experience, workload, and use of a medical scribe, and presence of urgent or non-urgent anterior segment eye disease. Um, excuse me, how about the presence or absence of insurance type? Because the electronic health records, only importance to the doctor is getting paid. Yes. So, of course, the doctor's need to get paid has nothing to do with the age and sex of the patient or physician's experience or his workload or the use of a medical scribe or whether the patient's condition is urgent or non-urgent. So what's what's conveniently forgotten here is the patient record is used as a tool for getting paid. And so if the doctor knows that for certain answers he doesn't get paid and the patient gives those answers, those answers are not likely to show up in the electronic health record. Yes. That's my editorial interpretation. Now, the people writing a study doesn't seem to really click with them, at least not yet. Let's see what they had to say. As noted by the authors, inconsistency may rather be due to time constraints, system-related errors, and communication lapses. Hmm. The authors suggest patient reported outcomes could be collected with a standardized template and uploaded into the electronic health record. So they're presuming, by the way, that the patient's telling the truth. We know the doctor's not. So the doctor's saying is not matching what the patient's saying. And so the doctor is supposed to take this information from the patient and then use it to formulate a diagnosis and treatment plan. 
So if the doctor is misrepresenting the information from the patient, the next location of error is the patient. Is the patient misrepresenting things? Here's a question. Let's see what we got here. In an invited commentary, we had an MD, MBA person from Houston, Texas, points out some problems with using both paper and electronic templates. Some practices ask patients to write symptoms on paper, and then those documents can be scanned into the electronic health record, but they may appear as a separate document and may be overlooked. Some patients unfamiliar with technology or with physical limitations may not be able to enter their data electronically. However, if staff enter the data, that could raise costs and introduce additional errors, Dr. Wing writes. Another potential solution would be to use templates so that the clinician would check off positive symptoms without neglecting to inquire about other symptoms on a standard list. But these templates can result in over-documentation or inaccuracies because of autofill capabilities, she said. In other words, the doctor will figure out, well, you know, most patients say this and answer the question. So we'll just fill it out for all the patients. Or better yet, we get paid more for this answer, so we'll just fill in all the questionnaires with this answer. Although data entry processes may still be imperfect, systems already offer numerous benefits and will ultimately help us unlock what could be the next frontier in medicine, big data analysis, machine learning, artificial intelligence. These are basically, we can replace the nurse and replace the doctor with machines and increase profits, of course all of which depend on a vast but highly high-quality data set, Dr. Wing writes. Limitations of study include that it was conducted at a single center using one type of electronic health record. Oh, be still my heart. If they had used more than one type of electronic health record, it would have been an even more devastating outcome. Why? Because different formats don't communicate with each other, so there would be even greater loss of data. So the discrepancies they found were actually um, the best-case scenario. Now, Here's the deal. Why don't we make this real? Why don't we just get a real case example? Here's a real case example. I have a mother, many of you know, who's 85 years old. And mom said to me, she's come to visit. Many of you know my husband's deceased, so mom's come to, you know, keep me company. And she says, I don't understand my medical records. Can you explain them to me? I said, Mom, yes, I will help you out. And so it says, today's diagnoses. And so I went over the whole list of what the doctor said the diagnosis was. And then I looked, of course, at the medical records. And there was no evidence in the medical records or from talking to my mother to support Three of the diagnoses, primary hyperparathyroidism, edema unspecified, and change in bowel habits. I said, Mom, are any of these things the case? She said, no, no, that's, that's not, not true at all. I said, okay. So we have here a little bit of inaccuracy in the medical record of an 85-year-old who's with it enough to realize whether or not she has a symptom. But it gets even better. Allergies, no known drug allergies. Okay. Medications. I said, Mom, are you taking these medicines? I said, Mom, are you taking hydrogel? No, I'm not taking that. 
Mom, are you taking the vitamin D3? Oh, yes, I'm taking that one. Mom, what about the lisinopril hydrochlorothiazide? Oh, I, I take that most days. Okay, Mom, good. What about the B12? Oh, yeah, yeah, I take that one. Well, Mom, what about the Allegra allergy pill? Um, no, no, I don't take that. What about the allergy relief 10 milligram pill? No, no, I, I don't take that. What about the acetaminophen extra strength 500 milligrams, two tablets every six hours if needed? No, no, I don't take that. What about the Sarah Tears allergy eye itch relief drops? No, no, I, I don't take those. Mom, what about the Timolol Maliate? One drop to both eyes twice a day. No, I, I, I don't take that. Okay, Mom. So your doctor has listed two, four, six, eight, nine drugs, of which she's only taking three. We can definitely say that Mom's health records are a definite reflection of this article here, although Mom did not go to the emergency room. So you can imagine an HMO manager trying to manage resources and sort through stuff might be fairly ineffective using these records to determine anything at all. Right. So here we have the double cross. So the doctor, so I, said, I said, Mom, does your doctor know that you're not taking these drugs? Oh, yes, yes, yes. I told him I wasn't taking the drugs. Huh. Okay. And so referrals. I said, Mom, they referred you to the wound care center. Oh, no, I'm not going to go there. Okay. And, Mom, they referred you to the gastroenterology people. Well, there's nothing wrong with my stomach. Okay, Mom. So we have these two referrals. One, definitely fabricated. Mom doesn't even have a problem in that area. And the other one, Mom has no intention of complying with. Okay, great. Then they talk about smoking status. That's pretty accurate. Never smoked. And then, of course, Mom has a future appointment, which um, she does not plan to keep, but never know she might show up. So this is the double cross. So what does a double cross mean? Well, first of all, it means mom's privacy is certainly safe, even if someone does steal and compromise her medical records, because by golly, the information is just plain not accurate. On the other hand, on the other hand, what if her doctor is absent the next time around, and there's a new doctor, and he gets this piece of paper here? He's going to think she's taking all these drugs. Well, well, she's not. And so the insurance companies, through their desire to capture something called big data, and even says right here in the article that um, you know the, the next frontier in medicine is to get this uh, big data so then we can get artificial intelligence, we can have machines doing everything, and we can let robots provide health care. But we can't do that if there is no accurate database. There's no accurate base of information on which to place this. So you can't have machine learning if all the information given to the machine is not true, or at least 48% of it is not true. And you can't develop artificial intelligence if 48% of the information the robot is learning never happened and is totally fabricated. And so big business has shot itself in the foot by crossing the doctor and not paying him. And then if the doctor doing a double cross, which is, okay, you're not going to pay me, I'm not going to give you accurate data. 
So if you're not paying me for accurate data, let me try inaccurate data. And as you can see, uh, the, the accuracy rate of this data, actually it's about, around about 48%. So let's take a look at the lab tests. We did a lot of lab tests. We have a CBC. Uh, monocytes are high, 12.6. Normal is up to 10. And these are... Um, Maybe high, but guess what? Not clinically significant. Glucose elevated at um, 113, normal is 105. Again, not clinically significant. Calcium result 11.4, a little bit high, normal is 10.2. Definitely worth repeating that one. Uh, a different time and different day, but they repeated on the same sample. And sometimes you can get elevated calcium depending on how the sample is handled. And then cholesterol 254, cholesterol 254 in an 85-year-old lady, uh, definitely a sign of good health. And LDL is a little bit high at 191, <laughs> normal being up to 99, so mom's probably got a sweet tooth. But here we have it. We have these uh, lab tests done. Uh, some normal, some not. None of them clinically important. And that is it. So, mom, an example. So many of you know my father died. I mean, my um, husband died, but my sister also died. My sister died about a week ago. Okay. This is my older sister. And so my mother says, Jennifer, I'm really confused. What did she die of? Because... um. You know, they said she had a cold and uh, was a cough, and they took her to the hospital, and uh, she was dead the next morning. And then uh, no one thought it was really anything that serious. And so mom gives me the death certificate. So what does the death certificate say? It says acute cardio, that would mean heart, respiratory arrest. So in other words, she had a heart attack. Hmm. Sounds like a complication of medication given on an emergency basis. The secondary diagnosis, so she died of a heart attack due to her high blood pressure, due to her elevated cholesterol, due to her profound developmental delay. As I mentioned, I have uh, two sisters who are twins, premature, mentally retarded. So um, and then say she has cerebral palsy. Okay. Well, so I have here a piece of what could be called, well, fiction. You come to the hospital with a cough, plus or minus a fever, and they're going to say you died of a heart attack due to high blood pressure and elevated cholesterol. This is the data. This is the data. Insurance companies, the all-seeing eye, this is the data that they're basing their actions on. And with this kind of bad data, you can't sort anything out. So obviously, there's no chance that this person died of a uh, of a heart attack. <laughs> it's not what happened. And no place on here is the proximal cause of death her respiratory condition. So while she may have died of a heart attack, it was unrelated to her presenting complaint and most likely the result of subsequent intervention, medical intervention, in other words. Okay. So then we have my own husband, 
another death certificate. Now, this one's from Panama, so I said, oh, you know, Dr. Daniels, you're not very accurate down there. Okay, I leave this to you to sort this out. Okay, so again, tummy pain, go to the hospital. The doctor says you need surgery, surgery, dead 30 minutes later. So let's see what this one says. Again, the promise is you give up this data, insurance company pays, and since insurance companies don't really pay, that people who accept insurance now are saying, well, if you're not going to pay for the truth, let's try a lie. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I have to say, taking it to the hospital uh, in Panama, they have all these forms to fill out. And you just tell them, you know what? You're going to have to fill it out the best you can. And they, uh, they fill it in and they make, and they make it up. Now, uh, no fever, no fever. And, um, Talking to the doctor, he even showed me a video, videos now of the actual surgery. So I opened him up, looked at his belly, not any sign of infection of any kind, no infection. So what's the cause of death? The cause of death is septic shock. That means an infection throughout the blood system. So he didn't have an infection. All right. Next is mesenteric thrombosis, the blood clot in the um, circulation surrounding the gut. So another piece of somewhat reliable information. So the second situation here was present thrombosis of the gut and probably did contribute to the death. But this is what's going on. You've got the cross, you've got the double cross. And so what happens then is the patients are giving up this information, which would be any private detective's dream, any um, digital impersonator's dream. Information that has nothing, nothing to do with proper medical treatment of the individual. So whether you have an alcoholic who drinks wine or whiskey or beer, as far as the medical treatment, it's the same. So there is no medical benefit to the patient in terms of therapy for giving that level of detailed information. This information can only be, a, be abused. It can only be used to impersonate that individual should the electronic medical record be sold online. It can only be used to track that person, to gain his confidence um, in the event that somebody did want to track him. So if someone's a beer drinker, well, you're not going to find him at the wine store, are you? So it helps you to track people. Because you know the person, you know where they work, you know where they live, you know their next to kin, and you know their emergency contact. There you go. Nothing in this process is a benefit to the patient. So that's the cross, the double cross. And then, of course, the insurance company using this information for, let's just say, non-beneficial purposes um, end up being double cross as well. End up being double cross. Of course, the next cross is that above and beyond the insurance company are the people who actually manage the healthcare industry, the medical industrial complex, and extract this information for purposes of making decisions about how to control the lives of American citizens. And there's a lot of people out there, you're worried about the Illuminati. You're worried about these groups of people who are power-hungry and maybe money-hungry and running the world. 
You have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. The database like this that they're working with, they cannot possibly be effective. It can only be a series of blunders one after another. So that is the art of the double cross. The art of the double cross. So, now, for the patient, of course, it never ends. Because the first thing is you give out all this information. The doctor provides therapy based on the information that's of no earthly use to you. And then the fabricated inaccurate medical record, which you carry to the next doctor, has a list of medications on it that you're not taking, has a bunch of diagnoses on it that you never had. And so this new doctor, because this stuff is written in the medical record, as a standard of care, he is obligated to provide therapy consistent with the medical record, because that's what he's judged by, the medical record. This is the basis of reimbursement, payment. It's the basis of malpractice, not malpractice. And so then the next doctor, in order to be a judge as a competent doctor, has got to provide to you therapy based on the, we'll generously call it erroneous medical records, but really inaccurate and deliberately misrepresented medical records. And so then their chances of getting therapy relevant to your condition or beneficial to your future is just about friggin' zero. This is a seriously dangerous situation. So, of course, it's no, it's no wonder <laughs> that 880,000 people every year fall prey to death and actually being killed as a result of their medical therapy. So that is the deal. And, of course, you're listening to Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul Channel, and this is Healing with Dr. Daniels. And, of course, our sponsor, VitalityCapsules.com. Please visit VitalityCapsules.com and get your free report, Candida Cleaner updated version. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now we are ready for questions and for questions. You can call in at 914-338-0695. It's 914-338-0695. Or we have an interesting chat going on at healingwithdrdaniels.chatango.com. That's it. All right. Let's see what the questions are in the chat room. (laughs) Dr. Daniels, why does some little bit of idle speculation from some doctor I met years ago become part of my medical records? One of the things I complain of or mention are nowhere to be seen. That's because your doctor is trying to get paid. That's because you're not paying him. And so he needs to engage in his idle speculation in order to get paid. Okay, so hi, Doc. Is there any sort of standard medical excuse I can use to explain why I've been out of action and not working for the past few years? Instead of telling them the real reason and having to go into detail. Well, I don't know what the real reason is, so I'm going to help you make one up. 
So if you have been, <laughs> so if you've not been working for several years and you need to come up with some sort of excuse, the average stock excuse is PTSD. Uh, so PTSD is um, basically post-traumatic stress disorder. And so you had some sort of trauma. Uh, it was stressful to you, and this stress uh, interfered with your ability to work. That's it. And what was the trauma? The trauma can be anything. It can be something as trivial as failing to stop at a stop sign, realizing you failed to stop, and just being totally devastated by that. Yeah, anything. It can be anything. So PTSD is a nice uh, basket case diagnosis. And, of course, you must have PTSD. Otherwise, uh, it would be to work. And so the person asked, what about ongoing traumatic stress disorder? No, 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 no. It has to be post-traumatic. So in other words, the medical field only acknowledges trauma, traumatic stress, after an event. So you have to have an event, and that one event then triggers a lifetime of stress. Yeah, amazing. Absolutely amazing. Okay. (laughs) Dr. Daniels, I think then it would be better not to explain anything to doctors because anything you're explaining, you're losing. Um, what do you think? Well, I think that really is unrelated to this, the matter at hand. It doesn't matter what the patient explains. That's disregarded. What matters is the patient revealing their name, address, phone number, social security number, driver's license number, um, next to can, and emergency contact. That, once you give that up, the rest doesn't really matter. I mean, to put it mildly, they own you. They own you. And it's basically just too bad. Okay, let's see. Okay, let's see if we have other questions. I must... (laughs) All right. Okay, so that's it for these questions. So, um, it used to be, be careful what you say in your medical record. It can and will be used against you. But now, with the pressure doctors are under in terms of reimbursement and payment, and not just doctors, but hospitals. Remember, this study was done with the emergency room. So the doctors in the emergency room are under pressure to put down certain diagnoses to enhance the reimbursement that hospitals get. And hospitals have actually been known to go back and redo the diagnostic codes that the doctor puts down in order to improve uh, their reimbursement. So your medical record um, speaks for itself. And as soon as you show up, the record is simply generated. And the issue there is it doesn't matter what you say. Um, You couldn't incriminate yourself if you wanted to, and you couldn't vindicate yourself if you wanted to. And so when you walk into a medical situation, whether it is – the emergency room or a doctor's office, 
that doctors need to get paid, your insurance company's criteria for paying him is what determines uh, what ends up in the health record and what it looks like. It doesn't matter anymore. So there was a time, maybe mm, 20 years ago for sure, where you would tell the doctor something and that would incriminate you. No, not anymore. If your incriminating remark is not going to get the doctor paid, you can be assured your incriminating remark will not show up in your medical record. You are certainly safe from that perspective. (laughs) So um, the problem now with medical records is they are totally inaccurate. A 48% error rate on the most common of symptoms is disturbing. It's disturbing, of course, from a managerial perspective, if you're trying to figure out what the heck went on so you can figure out how to uh, maximize maximize the money you receive if you're, say, a hospital, or if you're trying to minimize the money you pay out if you're an insurance company. So these records are totally uh, fake and false, which is what this study indicates. But the worst the worst thing that happens is these fake false records are then carried forward to the next medical encounter and used as a basis for the next doctor's medical therapy. So now you have harm compounded upon harm. So Dr. Dance, is it okay to stop taking daily aspirin since you say it's harmful? (laughs) That's your decision. I would never have gotten started in the first place and just for your information, in medical school, we were taught that aspirin is so dangerous that had aspirin been available or, or had the FDA been in existence at the time that aspirin was introduced, it would never have received FDA approval. That is a quote from medical school. You figure it out. So my doctor put me on the, the 81 milligram dose along with atenolol. Hmm. Yeah. Of course, this is not medical advice. It doesn't. It doesn't treat, diagnose, or cure any affliction. Any decision you make is your own. But definitely taking an aspirin a day is um, is certainly ill-advised. This is something that the medical literature has has, um, denounced as no longer a good idea. But whether you decide to take it, it's up to you. Uh, In other words, it's okay to take it, and it's, well, okay not to take it. Okay, what is... Kratum, and is it safe to take with blood pressure medicine? Okay, so Kratum is basically a recreational drug. And is it safe to take with blood pressure medications? Um, that kind of misses the point, which is, are blood pressure medications safe to take? Um, the blood pressure medications, in my opinion, are actually not safe to take. I would personally not take a blood pressure medication. Um, so... Is Kratum safe to take with a medication that's unsafe to take? Um, so it's just a um, a stimulant. So it's a um, tree in Asia that's in the um, coffee um, category. And it's the first ever herb that was basically put on a do not use schedule by the um, the FDA. So very interesting. I don't understand why, 
well, I do understand why they do that. They would do that. It's just the FDA's um, attempt to extend its authority to that of uh, herbs. And so they basically, the, the idea is to say, well, hey, can we uh, extend our authority to this? And so it's, um, Catrum is this herb uh, used in folk medicine as a stimulant at low doses, kind of like coffee is used in uh, our uh, society in the United States. And it can also be at high doses of sedative. It could be a recreational drug or a painkiller or medicine for diarrhea. And it can treat opiate addiction. And so many people report that it's an effective treatment for arthritis and restless leg syndrome and fibromyalgia. So basically we have a drug that in terms of its harm level is somewhere around that of coffee. Uh, Most people don't know that coffee at high doses can cause um, heart arrhythmias and uh, a whole assortment of issues and problems. Also, it can cause diarrhea. This one relieves diarrhea. But basically, we're talking about the um, side effect level, very, very uh, similar. So outlying Pratom is simply the FDA saying, hey, can we extend our reach a little bit here? Okay. You know, taking dotiazem and quanidine and curcum, is that a good idea? I don't think so. But, you know, you got to do with what you think is, is best. Now I can ask, what is the best way to detox high levels of lead? Um, so I don't know what high levels of lead are, but let's just say uh, your lead level is elevated. The simplest way would be to take trace minerals. And these trace minerals would displace the binding of the lead. And then to take uh, clay or charcoal or a combination of both in the intestines to soak up the uh, lead that was discharged. That would be the best way. Okay. Mm, Okay. What about cataracts? I'm sorry, we only have 60 seconds left. We are at the end of the show. So, um, not able to answer additional questions. But there's always Sunday. And as always, think happens.